When you see a TV commercial, a billboard, or a magazine ad, there's no question what it is. It's an attempt to sell you something. Online advertising is different. It has become devious, non-transparent, and unscrupulous. It is often intentionally confusing, and its motives are often unclear. It does everything possible to hide its true intent. Hello and welcome to Silence Please, the podcast where we invite industry professionals to join us in having the hard conversations our industry needs to have to survive. In this episode, we'll be discussing digital pollution. What is it and how can we clean it up? If the realization came to us that something we're doing might be marginally beneficial to our company, but was clearly harmful to consumers, clearly harmful to our industry, and clearly harmful to society, I would hope that we would have the integrity to give it some serious scrutiny. I'm afraid that is the situation we find ourselves in today. So the title of today's podcast is Digital Pollution, the idea that surveillance marketing, and by that I mean using cookies to track people without their consent, is a type of digital pollution, making it comparable to fake news, hate speech and trolling. If we understand pollution as harming the environment it's in, then surveillance marketing is harming the internet and harming our industry. With me today are Kieran Deering, Director of Digital at TCS Media, Anant Joshi, Chief Revenue Officer at Fact Matter, and Verity Buet, Communications Manager at Silence Media. So, in a sentence, could you all let me know your initial reactions to my statement? Kieran. Whilst comparable, I think that fake news is a much more insidious form of digital pollution than simply the use of cookies for the purpose of targeting advertising. Verity. I think it's comparable in the sense that it's a road in trust in brands. This relentless retargeting, this idea that ads are following you around the internet, is contributing to a huge distrust in the online environment and towards the companies that operate within it. And Ant? I think in general the misinformation on the web is really related to the content that is being produced. Political bias, where you're siding with one political party versus hate speech, which is looking at sexism and racism and religious slurring on the web. So it is comparable, I think definitely higher, because you the ultimate aim of sort of misinformation is you're polarising a view on society, which is definitely more impactful in the long term. We've been thinking a lot about surveillance marketing at Silence, wondering what impact it's having on the consumer, for example. There was a recent article in the Harvard Business Review called Targeted Ads That Don't Overstep that suggested that if we remarket to people, they're less likely to buy our clients' products. Kieran, do you think that we were clumsy in the way that we started using that data? For example, we caused people to turn to ad blockers when we were chasing them around the internet with that pair of trainers. Yes, I don't think that the true value of the data that advertisers and media owners were accessing was really considered. And I think that, as with all emergent markets, there's a great flood of experimentation and money-making and um, an excess in terms of targeting people and trying to profiteer from a new opportunity. But I think the value of the data, which is of paramount importance, particularly to the end user, the consumer, has been completely undermined. And that's a major problem for me and for a lot of our advertisers. I don't think people have an issue when their data is being used to improve their browsing experience. I think the issue comes with dishonesty. 
um, when you don't know that your data is being sold and the idea that it's just being sold to the highest bidder. In terms of expense of the consumer, I think it varies. It varies in extent. So I don't necessarily think targeting someone with an ad for an album is detrimental to that consumer. However, I do think targeting someone again and again with a political message is detrimental. I think it kind of questions democracy. And also targeting people that are vulnerable, targeting people with gambling addictions, with betting ads. I don't agree with that. I think it's immoral. So I think it varies in extent. But yeah, we definitely do target to the expense of the consumer. So if you read Badman, one of the things that Bob Hoffman tells us is that by 2025, ad fraud will be the second most popular type of criminal activity in the world. And Anne, could you talk us through the online advertising industry's relationship with ad fraud? Sure. One of the things is how you're defining ad fraud. So effectively, it's non-human traffic. And the MRC in the States would define it as general invalid traffic, which is basically could be things like legitimate web callers. So for example, the Google index that will be web calling pages would be quite legitimate, right? It's making calls, but it's non-human. You could have publisher monitoring tools that will be making calls to check the performance of a website to make sure it's not down in any way. So basically, you know, the advertising industry would need to classify, first of all, what it is. And and some companies would classify fraud differently than others. So you've got the general stuff and everyone should sort of filter that stuff out from marketing. And then you've got the sophisticated ways of tracking invalid traffic. And that could be looking at things like, is there a botnet? You know, is there a number of machines that are making calls via headless browser for the real purpose of defrauding the industry? And then you've got other techniques. It could be kind of like a pay-to-view ad process where you're actually getting paid to watch ads, but it's actually done by humans. The ad has been seen by a human, but you know that it's not going to be in a very effective use of budget by targeting there. So all these different types and then... Pages being built that looks and feels like a real website, but it's there to defraud and run adverts um, for them to get money. So you've got these different types of classifications, and I think it's important that vendors sort of align, and I think the MRC in the US have done a good job for that. There's also JICWebs here in the UK. So defining it, and yes, it's a problem, but you also need to know who are putting the stats out. Are there anti-fraud vendors who have a hidden agenda to make sure their services are being used? And how accurate are those numbers in market is really important. Can you explain to us what a click farm is? Um, Yeah, so if you imagine that there's a big outfit, it tends to be in some developing markets where they could have a number of people in a room, kind of like a big internet cafe. Effectively, they'll be looking at a browser and basically clicking on an ad. So if it's performance-led ads, they could be clicking on it because they're getting a, a CPC cost. You can actually get technology where you can sign up to a website and actually get paid to watch adverts in your own home. I spoke to an agency probably about a year and a half ago, and they said that somebody actually managed to pay for a kitchen by by basically just racking up all these number of views that they had to do. It's an issue. Kieran, what are your thoughts? Very interesting. Um, it's just such a wide open, almost infinitely sized market that it's too easy for fraudulent operators to come along and game the system. And how you police this issue is the major issue. And as you're saying, 
I think partnering with the relevant verification services, particularly if you're in the programmatic market and advertising via DSPs, is absolutely critically important. Of course, as with all forms of fraud, as soon as you close one door, um, the fraudsters will come and push another right. door open. So I don't think that it's a game that possibly will see an end anytime soon. It's a cat and a mouse game. It is literally a cat and yeah. mouse game. And, and I think that the problem, the issue is, unlike most other media channels, there's an almost infinite number of media owners or media opportunities, both sort of valid and invalid and fraudulent out there, and how you police such a vast ocean of opportunity is, is a really major issue. And so I think, you know, a lot of advertisers are just going to go back. This is what's happening. They're reviewing what they're doing on the programmatic side, particularly because I think that's one area where fraud has been prevalent. And that's just been an ongoing debate long before the current headlines with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And I think people just need to look at data sources, choosing their media partners really carefully, having the right technology in place to monitor for fraud and doing the right things as and when it's spotted. It's a really big problem, I think. Barity, how important is it then at the beginning of a campaign, before it runs, that you choose the websites on which you're going to run? Very important. So I think all this technology is great and it's definitely a level of security, but I don't think we should undermine the value of human verification as well. So at Silence, for example, we have a whitelist of 20,000 sites and a human being has been on every one of those sites and verified them, checked that they're a level of quality that we're happy with. And then we also layer technology on top of it as well as a second verification so I think a combination of the two is important and sometimes we forget because we're so caught up in the tech you need both to kind of make it valid. I think unless you're a particular type of advertiser there have been advertisers online who have just purely speculated in that wide open market via DSPs and programmatically buying they're simply chasing audience chasing response they're not particularly concerned with brand relevance. Of course, they're concerned with brand safety. But to be honest, if profit comes first, and if there's sort of three, four percent of your ad impressions being served in unsafe environments, and you're not a prominent brand that's going to ever sort of make headlines, and you're making a profit from your investment, then those types of advertisers, I think, are turning a blind eye. And that's obviously been a problem and part of the problem all along. I think when you get to a level where you're working with recognised brands, who have invested millions over tens, hundreds of millions, sometimes over the course of years, decades, to build brand trust. Those are exactly the type of brands who need to tread extremely carefully with any form of online buying that could be open to fraud. And so just think about a site the size of the Daily Mail, for example, or The Guardian, or any you know very, very large-scale website, which has vast traffic volumes. There are still issues within those media with regard to having an ad served against inappropriate content. Mm. So you do need to get right down to them. This is not fraudulent, it's just an issue. You don't want to be putting an ad for fire extinguishers next to an article about a serious fire that has caused death or extreme distress. And you have to be constantly monitoring these things. And I completely agree with Verity. You have to just combine human insight and human decision-making with technological safeguards and processes that basically reduce the opportunity or the possibility that an ad is going to appear in an unsafe or inappropriate environment. So last year, 
The Times reported that pre-rolls from advertisers like Honda, Mercedes-Benz and Disney were running against content from extremist organisations like Islamic State and Combat 18. Kieran, how have we got to a place where our clients' ads are being used to fund hate speech? The challenge of policing such a vast, infinite environment is incredibly difficult and very, very complex. And, of course, you have very well-established media within which uh, the content that's housed on those media is all editorially selected by a human being and it's sanctioned and generally you can assume that that content is going to be brand safe. And then you have ad tech giants who are simply providing platforms for content that's created by their users. And naturally that content varies in quality from extremely high to extremely low and right down the other end to content created for ill-gotten gains, basically. And ultimately, this is the challenge that lies predominantly with those ad tech platforms. We've all been in this business quite some time, and I certainly recall at least once a year, once every two years, there's something that makes the headlines with regard to a, a venerable brand who's been spotted next to content that's completely inappropriate. As a business, as an industry sector, we can't allow that to continue to happen. Anand, what's your take on all this? Within the, especially the social media platforms, they've made a number of changes on the back of this happening to basically publicise what a brand can do when they're buying inventory. So you can, you know, negatively target away from those areas and you can choose the subcategories. So I think a lot of the brands didn't actually activate those tools, first of all, available inside the system to guarantee those safety measures. And they weren't working with third-party companies. And I would say that so much uh, inventory is being brought now and so much is being spent, but the safeguarding isn't there yet. At uh, Fact Matter, we're actually working on a, a proof of concept at the moment where we can extract a video file and convert the speech in the file to text and then for us to analyse it via our AI that we have uh, built for things like hate speech on the back of, like, especially some large agency groups saying, you know, worst thing that we that can happen is if one of our adverts appears on a neo-Nazi website, for example. So that's driving that demand. So one, it's budget, getting the eyeballs, more people spending time on video especially is a challenge to sort of police that. But they're so cautious now, especially with the press, you know, the worst thing also for a CMO is, for an example, screenshot to be in the Times where they're being exposed in a way. And so they have to basically rely on where they're buying, but also working on their own solutions with third parties to ensure it doesn't happen. Kieran, do you think it matters that it wasn't our original intent for this to happen? No. I don't think so. I think when you get to the level of exposure that the industry has arrived at with regard to public awareness and negative headlines, what matters is there's a practicable solution that's put in place that at least goes as far as possible to solve these issues going forward. People whose opinions matter most in this, I think, are the end consumers, people. And, um, you know, they've had data gleaned from their internet user behaviour and they've been given this line that there's a value exchange and that, you know, in return for the data we're taking from you, we're giving you a better browsing experience. I don't think that's true. For the most part, there is no value going back to the end consumer for all the data that's been taken from them. Faraday, how do you feel as a consumer when your data is used in this way? What do you think about when you think about that supposed value exchange? 
I think, as Kieran said, there's times when it's not a value exchange and they're just saying it is. But I also think, take Facebook. So our information is out there, they've already got it. And no matter how many issues I have about privacy and concern now, I won't deactivate my Facebook account because Facebook has become fundamental almost to my life, as in I speak to my friends on it. It's the service that it offers I can't imagine living without. So I will keep my Facebook account and they've got my data. As consumers, we kind of talk a big talk, Mm. but when it comes down to it, we don't necessarily withdraw. There's an irony here, which is that the company that's most in the firing line right now is the company, alongside Google, right, the duopoly, which I think has some relevance in saying the data we're taking from you is allowing us to deliver more relevant ads to you. And leaving aside the whole social aspect and the fun aspect and staying in touch with friends and family and all the rest of it, those guys, I think, to a certain extent, are getting it right, which is why I think it's really important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I use Instagram a lot personally, and I get targeted a lot by brands that cater to my specific niche personal interests, and I'm really quite happy. And that's coming from an advertising cynic, But let's not forget there's a pecking order. There's lots of scenarios where my data is taken from me via cookies again, going back to, you know, when I'm out in the wider open internet and that data is, you know, ending up in some DMP somewhere and uh, advertisers are buying that data back at much inflated prices and who knows about the quality and the reliability of it. And that's where I really have a problem. But there's an irony that it's Facebook that's in the firing line, but to me actually they are one of the few that provide real value back to the end user. And it's important that the end user, I think, is somehow reminded of that because Facebook is more than an ad platform. Yeah, and I think with GDPR, I'm hopeful, as you say, it's like the dishonesty involved. I think when people implicitly know what their data Mm. is being used for to target you with relevant ads, Mm. then they're more okay with it. And Anne, I suppose, uh, as Kieran was saying earlier, brands are always going to worry about where their ads are appearing online. So what can we do in the future to protect them from that? I think it's really interesting to know what are the main concerns. Like right now, we're talking to a lot of brands to figure out, you know, what are the new areas that we should be focusing as an AI company to try and detect? So what are the new things? You know, could it be controversy? Could it be detecting quotes? Like who said what? Where did that quote actually originate from? But other things like child abuse and child safety is a big concern at the moment. So I think what we want to do is kind of understand where the problem areas that nobody else is really finding it really super difficult to actually pinpoint and actually concentrate on those ones, which require a human element and AI learning to detect those things. Are you concerned about fake news, Karen? Yeah, personally, I'm concerned about it. It's a big problem. It's positive to a certain extent that it's right at the forefront of the news agenda right now, the real valid news agenda, because um, the more we learn about it, the more we understand it, the more we can figure out how to spot it and to deal with it ultimately. So generally, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about fake news. There are some very intelligent people out there who can figure out how to use the network effect that lots of clever tech businesses have capitalized on to twist the agenda somehow. And it's a very dangerous phenomenon yeah and it's this it's vulnerable people so like those who aren't exposed to as much as we have been we're capitalizing on their vulnerability with our ads and questioning democracy essentially and that's wrong all fake news is is just propaganda being distributed through different platforms and embarrassingly enough for all of us 
with an element of advertising involved. They're also quite overlapping. Obviously, fake news with extreme political bias mm. can spread into each other. So you could also classify fake news as even spoof websites, you know, uh, a website trying to be FT when they're not FT, for example. Can you tell us a bit more about criminals impersonating the Financial Times or other reputable news organisations? What's happening there? Yeah, so effectively they can build a website. And I've even seen people sending me stuff on WhatsApp that will be a link to a website which actually looks like the actual website, like a supermarket website, to win X amount of voucher or something. And you can actually see from the text that it's actually a different character. And it looks like an A, but it's actually could be like a, a Russian character set that you can only look very closely. So a lot of those techniques are spoofing it, even on the URL that looks like the genuine URL. You go to the site, it looks like the site, so the same look and feel. But they're using it to gather data. They're using it to run their own advertising. From a programmatic aspect, they'll be using it to deliver ad campaigns. You know, there's certain DSPs that are trying to combat that with very stringent lists like you guys have in terms of where you're allowed to run your advertising. So at Silence, we talk about this idea of the paper bag analogy. It's this idea that plastic bags were considered to be incredibly useful until we realised the impact that they were having on the environment. It's the same with cookies. There was a time when cookies were the hero of the age, if you will, but actually we've realised that they're really damaging. So in the same way that supermarkets are returning to using paper bags, the advertising industry is returning to contextual data. Kieran, do you think that analogy stands? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think cookies have a use. Uh, their use in terms of targeting advertising has been abused, and we know the limitations of that, and that's been discussed. But they do have a use in terms of remembering your previous behaviour on a website and serving you personalised content and storing, you know, password data and all the rest of it. And so they serve a purpose and uh, they can continue serving a purpose as long as they're not being used for any sort of fraudulent or abusive means or as long as they're not gleaning data from people without their knowledge and as long as they're, I guess, coming back to the value exchange, delivering some form of value exchange to the end user, to the person who is recognising that and benefiting from it. Going back to the larger focus on context, so in the campaigns that we run at Silence, we consistently see contextual data outperforming audience data in terms of the performance of the campaign. And I think this is because you can't guarantee the quality or the provenance of third-party audience data. I mean, Blue Guy, who is one of the largest providers of audience data, have this page called Blue Guy Registry. It presents you with all the segments that you've been put into based on that device, that device history. And when I went on it on my computer, I was a male, I was 65 plus, and I was in market for a computer. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so you'll see that you can be lumped into like multiple segments. You can be male and female. You can be this and that. So it's just to say that you can't guarantee that just because you're layering an audience segment onto a campaign that you're going to reach mm. that audience like that person so I think we should go back to focusing on context now with GDPR and the privacy directive you can argue that the quality of this audience data might get a bit better because people will actually be agreeing to it 
but it's going to be less readily available and it's going to be more expensive and I don't think it's worth focusing on that when context works so well. There's two big problems for me with remarketing. One is that it's just done badly most of the time and the other is there are too many companies, as you're saying, taking data from users and remarketing people indiscriminately. For me and for a lot of our advertisers, remarketing can have a use and if it's done well, and if the agency, the advertiser, is using data that's collected in the right way, for example, potentially with somebody like Facebook, where you know that you're going to remarket to somebody within a controlled environment. If you're using Facebook analytics on the client site and you do know that somebody has visited the site, let's say, seven or eight times, and you do know that on average, if somebody gets there a tenth time, there's a good chance they'll engage because it's a long purchase decision cycle or whatever it might be. Then for us, there's nothing wrong with remarketing in, in that sense. In principle, I think there's a danger that the pendulum swings too far one way. Yes, most remarketing is excessive. Yes, there are too many companies taking the end consumer's data. And yes, a lot of it is rushed and isn't using the right strategy. But surely it can play some kind of role going forward as long as it's in a more controlled environment. And the, the data analysis is done in the right way and the creative message is delivered appropriately. Now, the advertising industry has never been any good at policing itself. Historically, it's always taken government to police. I thought we could close by hearing your thoughts on GDPR. The European Union's new data protection laws are aimed squarely at us. Kieran, do you think they will be beneficial for our industry? Uh, for the most part, yes. I think at heart it's about placing a value in identifying the extent to which data can be captured from the end user and the industry has got ahead of itself and had a bit of a field day over the last sort of 10 or 15 years and that's definitely been detrimental and not a particularly positive thing. I think that it will almost certainly, as Verity was saying, shut down a lot of the more questionable providers of data and a lot of the sort of companies that have actually, let's face it, done quite well over the last sort of 10 years or so, just basically gathering and trading data. And ultimately, I'm not sure that that has helped anybody in the food chain. And so GDPR has to be welcomed. But I do think that we have to, as an industry, bear in mind that we can't swing the pendulum too far uh, in the opposite direction. And that actually, ultimately, we are in a data economy. We are just one small sector within the much wider data economy that exists. And we, as a business and as an industry, have to figure out how we best use the data that's collected in the right way. There surely can be a role going forward for some form of remarketing as long as it's a controlled, strategically thought through way that's not you know, abusing the end user and their data. Verity, where are you on that scale? I think we've marked our own homework for too long, so I welcome it wholly. And I think it gives more power back to the consumer and that's what you want. And it really brings it to the forefront of people's minds. Like the regulation aside, just the concept of it is making people think a little bit more about it, about consumers, and I think that's a good thing. Anant, I'm very positive about it, but there's also some grey areas, I guess. So imagine going to an exhibition and putting your business card in a goldfish bowl. Is that person now going to be uh, retargeted <laughs> with an email campaign? So so those haven't been explicitly explained in GDPR, but effectively what you're meant to do is, OK, if you're going to be retargeted or sent a newsletter, you have to email that person and say, this is what we're planning to do. Are you OK? So you need to get that consent. So I think a lot of these areas will come up, these uh, cases where this kind of offline to online behaviour will start to get affected as well. 
And that brings us to the end of this episode. A massive thank you to today's guests, Verity Bouet, Communications Manager at Signers Media, Kieran Deering, Director of Digital at TCS Media, and Anant Joshi, Chief Revenue Officer at Fact Matter. Thank you as always to Bob Hoffman for recording extracts from his book, especially for this podcast. I'm Lee Henshaw, one of the owners of Silence Media. This series is produced by Jesse Lawson from Reduce Listening. Our music is by Super Thriller. I'm very sad to say that next episode will be our last. It's called Creative Renaissance. We love our industry and we believe we can lead it in a positive direction for everyone. Tune in next week for some optimism to counterbalance all the doom and gloom of the series when we'll discuss creativity and how it can save our industry.